When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. The 16th of July 2020 marks the 20th anniversary of the launch of Cluster, a European Space Agency mission to learn more about how our planet's magnetic field interacts with particles streaming from the sun known as the solar wind. For this episode, I got the chance to speak to Dr. Mike Hapgood, a space weather expert and a scientist who's been a key part of the Cluster team since the 1990s, to find out more about this incredible mission, decades in the making. My name is Mike Hapgood. I work at RAL Space, which is part of uh, UK Research and Innovation, and it's at its Rutherford Appleton Laboratory, hence the RAL bit. Um, I have done all sorts of things involved with with, with kind of space research and the natural, uh, the basically how the sun drives various phenomena in space around the Earth and in our atmosphere and even on the ground. You might uh, lump that as kind of the but space weather, but it's partly I work on the science of space weather, and that's my involvement with the cluster mission. But in recent years, I've also had a big involvement in the impacts of space weather. But in talking about cluster, I guess I should focus on the science of space weather and the science specifically that cluster does um had a long involvement in studying the earth's magnetosphere so the region of space around the earth and that's full of magnetic fields and plasma um, essentially uh, charged particles electrons protons and heavy ions that move about and there's an awful lot of dynamics in there that's driven by energy coming from the sun in the form of the solar wind and the flow of that into the Earth's magnetosphere is very much modulated by the magnetic fields in the solar wind and by you know great gusts of solar wind that we call coronal mass ejections and all the, the, the business of solar activity that uh, I probably is far too long to, to explain here. But what matters is that environment in the magnetosphere important because it puts energy into the Earth's upper atmosphere, particularly polar regions, and the spectacular example of that is the aurora, which is more or less where I started in this work like... Um, um, Rather too many decades ago, um, <laughs> like over four. Um, 
So uh, there's all that aspect of it. Also, but important, the magnetosphere, it's the environment in which a lot of satellites operate. And also, very important, it tells us about the fundamental uh, physics of what happens in similar environments throughout the universe. The magnetospheres of other planets, particularly, say, Saturn and Mercury, uh, Jupiter's moon, uh, Ganymede is a bit like that. Jupiter itself is a bit different because it's such a huge object and has a lot of different dynamics. But we also, there'll be similar structures in other solar systems. And so, yeah, there's, there's a, a very down-to-earth aspect of it. It's our Earth environment, but it also has a, has a broader astrophysical knowledge that we gain from it. It's all that activity that you were talking about, aurora and uh, solar activity, coronal mass ejections. It, does that all f- fall under the bracket of space weather? I think a lot of people might not, might, might not have heard that term before, but what actually is space weather? Well, ultimately, space weather, we're concerned about how, how all that activity impacts our technological systems and to some extent in terms of radiation may have an effect on human health but it's the things you hear all the headline stuff about the power grids going down or gps not working properly or breakdown of radio communications out to aircraft there's a whole host of these things that people now take very seriously but what we're studying in the magnetosphere is a key part of the science that that drives those so if you think of it if say, people worry about the impacts of flooding on rivers but you've also got people then worry about you know trying to study and predict rainfall which is a key driver of of course for flooding it's all a very holistic thing you've got to see how all this is joined up it's also science it's not so much full of big great instant big headline discoveries it's this chipping away at understanding the science you see this in atmospheric science is always a good analogy you know 50 100 years people have been gradually improving how we understand the atmosphere and that feeds into better weather forecasts so we're doing the same with the magnetosphere the sun etc to make better space weather forecasts to warn when things will be disrupted yeah so are are those sort of um headlines and kind of worries about uh gps disruptions are, are they actually um justified you think <laughs> Yes, to some extent. Um, you could certainly have uh, disruptions to GPS if we had a really ba- big event like we had in 2003 or 1989. You'd have GPS either giving you very inaccurate positions like several miles away or just fading out completely. I, I wrote an article some years ago saying it's an amazing technology, but it's, uh, it's also a source of risk. You know, it pays if you're using GPS. Is what your GPS is telling you make sense? Like, look around with your eyes and does it match what GPS is saying? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and... You, in rural areas, you often hear this, drivers are all over the place because the GPS is not is putting them in the wrong place. Yeah, exactly. Or like the, the landscape hasn't been updated on the system and there, there's, yeah. a, there's now a road where there wasn't one. <laughs> yes, or there's a road that actually ends up in a foot ferry rather than a <laughs> bridge they can go over. That's a... um, the, the reason we're talking today is because um, the um, 16th of July 2020 is 20 years since the launch of the cluster mission. Um, I was wondering if you'd just tell us a bit about what what Cluster does and how you came to work on it. Okay, and what Cluster is first? Part of the idea in studying the magnetosphere is we want to try and distinguish between what's what's changing because something's moving, a spatial variation, or because the spacecraft's moving more than it, given the speed they move, or what's actually changing with time. So it's resolving space and time in terms of the magnetosphere. But we've recognised back as far back as 1965, uh, one of our, uh, sadly no longer with us, scientist Jim Dungey came up with the idea that you need four spacecraft, probably flying in tetrahedron. That's the perfect, and that was the genesis of the idea and it uh, finally turned into proposal in the 1980s and then as you know the, the, the successful mission was launched 20 years ago next week and um how, how did you come 
come involved in the mission and what has been your role throughout throughout those those 20 years Okay. I came to mission, it was just timing. I was at the right stage in my career when one of uh, our then senior uh, scientists uh, working with ESA spotted that somebody needed to coordinate science operations, and they gave our laboratory, RAL, the contract to do that. We built this thing called the Joint Science Operations Centre, and I was just at the right place at the right time, and have spent 27 years doing that. And I'm the sort of project scientist, so have to understand how the system works, but also under the science, and trying to to bring the two together um i've now actually passed on the project scientists as i'm sort of on the way to retirement but uh still keeping a finger in and help, helping them um so but over those years it's lost a lot of that's been actually just uh just making the science operation systems work and being the, the voice of science linking the engineering to the science and that's it's been a lovely community to work with because it's a very collaborative community. Everybody has worked together. The science drives that. The science comes from everybody working together, not from somebody running off with one big, big one data and making a big story out of it. Yeah, I'm sure I, I can can imagine it must just be a, a complete, uh, you know, collaborative effort with all the different um, disciplines and specialities mm. coming together to, to make a um, mission like this work. Yeah, there are 11 instruments on each of four spacecraft, so you can, there's 44 instruments in total, all to be coordinated, and that's the, the job we do. And when we started building it, we found that there was a great disparity in the way the scientists wanted to run their instruments. Um, so having scratched our heads a while, and we, we then had to go away and design a system that could cope with that disparity. That could, you know, some people had very simple systems that we could almost automate it and we could just send them a a draft of what was to be done and they would give it a quick once over and say yes. And in fact, later, when when they're confident, someone would say, I'm going on holiday and they pre-approve things. (laughs) Uh, So we could run those instruments comfortably. But other instruments required a lot of detailed attention, a lot of tender loving care to make them work very well. And so with those, we basically give them an empty frame and then they put in what they need to do. So we have this, uh, I think, I'm I'm very pleased over played a major part in designing that and the proof of the pudding is it's worked well for 20 years you know this is relentless since we started in january of 2001 we started preparing the commanding we've basically worked it every week we have a weekly cycle every week apart from we do a in uh, every december we do shuffle up a bit and try and do three weeks in four so everybody has christmas week off it was initially just just supposed to run for two years wasn't it the original design criterion we had was to build a mission for two years. That's what we were told back in '93 when we started doing the design work. Uh, and yes, and now it's twenty years on. What was the reason for that extension? Is it just is it just a case of it still works? So so why not keep using it? I think it's more that once you start discovering the science, there's lots of exciting science. When we started the mission, first of all, we only recorded for 50% of the orbit. And 50% of the orbit, we took no data. And everybody said that, well, there's definitely a need for a change. Let's um, take data all around the orbit. And ESA found the capacity to, to take data down from the spacecraft. We had to adapt our systems to record all around the orbit because we designed it for discrete lumps here and there on the orbit. And now we had to make sure each orbit was a discrete lump but we make sure we stitch up the boundaries so everything runs smoothly across the boundaries and so we put that in place in 2003 and since then a big thing that's driving the science also is the orbit changes a lot it started off with this big elliptical orbit going out about a third of the way to the moon 
Uh, and you know, the four spacecraft are all relatively close together, but coming down to about ooh, twenty thousand kilometers altitude. But they orbit. But it's it's very sensitive to the sun and the moon's effects. The same forces that drive the tides in the sea. Uh, and the orbits change. It, it, it's twisted round. It's grown. It's round. Back in two thousand and twelve, we got one spacecraft down to a two hundred and fifty kilometer altitude, and then started rising again. And the spacecraft have now reached a maximum and they're gradually coming down. I think first spacecraft just cost, uh, is now getting below 25,000 kilometers altitude. That sounds very safe. In four years' time, it's going to re-enter the atmosphere as the perigee drops. And then the others will follow in the following years. So the mission will come to a very definite end. One spacecraft in 24, one in 25, and two in 26. Yeah, and then he still believe that the breathe a sigh of relief because they don't have to worry about it running into hitting anything else you know <laughs> spacecraft collisions are a big issue these days and at times they used to have had to keep a close eye on where cluster is going and and have the capacity to fire they have the thrusters on it they could fire to to maneuver to make sure they don't get too close to another spacecraft yeah if if it's if, if it's orbiting earth is there any danger of it um for example, coming into contact with other artificial satellites or the International Space Station, or, or is, it, is it far too far too um, far away from the, from our planet to actually? I think that's a matter. No, I think that's that's a big thing for space for the people in, in in operating space operations. They do keep a very careful eye on these, and they have programs that will check where it's going. Is it going to get within say twenty kilometers of another object? I can't, I can't remember the exact. I'm just guessing twenty. But once they start seeing those, they will keep a close eye on it and maybe do them. And, you know, and the clusters are still have their full maneuvering capability. Not much fuel, but it don't take much to just change that mist distance if you spot it a few weeks ahead. That's absolutely incredible that it still has fuel. I mean, it, it's a few kilos. That must have added a, a lot of weight to the payload on launch. I mean, it, 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 well, that was part of the th- some of the fuel was required to get to the final orbit. The launchers didn't put them in the final orbit, and that was a lot. But a lot of fuel was needed. We want to check because we have the four spacecraft. We want to change the arrangement of the spacecraft, change the separations of them. You know, some cases we've the ESA have managed to bring them down to a few kilometers. By the time they've been twenty thousand, depending on the science, you, you you keep. There was recently we've had one where I call the top tail and Charlie mode, where one of the spacecraft one is actually trailing the others. So as the other spacecraft come into the Earth's magnetosphere, it's monitoring what the solar wind is doing immediately upstream and uh, yeah, it's an idea a Swedish colleague of mine proposed a few years ago and I'm delighted to see it's been done Fantastic. What is the, the need for four different spacecraft and do the four different spacecraft have specifically different functions or are they all kind of operating on the same, the same level? Generally we operate them the same way uh, the reason for the four is to get that separation of time and space when we see when we see signals uh, on the different spacecraft and compare them with four we can completely resolve what's changing with time and what is changing with spatial position and there's a whole set of colleagues who've developed all kinds of mathematical tools for doing this uh, which I certainly don't want to go into now because <laughs> I'd have to remind myself uh, but yeah the spacecraft we we try to run them identically where we are the system is designed to do that as a primo but we can do differences with we need to for instance when they get very spread out uh, then they all pass through the perigee region at different times so we have to do different things there to protect them from the radiation belts and put you know, the put the instruments in modes that are appropriate for the radiation belts and not something that's too sensitive and might would uh, be a problem mm. 20 years is, is a long time in um, a, a space mission and for, and for the advancement of, te- of, of technology mm. um, are there things that you wish 
you know, that we have now that we didn't have 20 years ago that you wish were on board the cluster? That oh, yes, abso- absolutely. But of course, the mission was designed in the late 1980s. So the technology is probably 30 years old. The big thing these days is, is to do better time resolution. Now, the Americans have a mission called Magnetospheric Multiscale that is like Cluster and is doing very high time resolution at very small separations. So, in fact, now rather that we don't, it's not so much a competition, it's a collaboration. So they will be doing this very fine time scale stuff because they have a, a more modern mission. But then to look at the bigger picture, we collaborate between the American missions and Cluster. So we can see what's happening on the large scale in the magnetosphere and they look at the small scale. One of the big, I think, the one big ticket discovery, I would say, over the last 20 years is understanding we have to look at all these scales at the same time. Because things happening at, say, a very small scale of a few kilometres can be affecting what's happening at a thousand kilometre scale. And that can then be affecting actually what's almost happening globally throughout the magnetosphere. Uh, and it's putting all that together is, is the big challenge. Hmm. Yeah, in, in terms of discoveries, what, what have been the, the big... Um scientific breakthroughs from from cluster what what have the scientists actually learned i think there's all sorts of things and uh, uh, that's why i'm saying it's it's more understanding that the issue about the scales is the thing i would always highlight beyond that there's all sorts of details of different regions it's a bit invidious to try and pick things out but we've explored the you know the the generation of the aurora you know some textbooks say the aurora is electrons coming from the sun that's generally nonsense most of it is is they're actually energized 10 to 20,000 kilometers above the Earth's surface in what we call the auroral acceleration region. It's uh, <laughs> obvious and not very uh, enthralling, but it does the job. And it's trying to understand what happens there. It generates the electrons, that energy electrons that produce the aurora. Also generates a huge amount of radio radio signals that you could actually, you could probably should be able to detect them at Proxima Centauri. <laughs> They're so <laughs> powerful. Yeah, that's why some radio astronomers want to go and hide on the back of the moon if they can work at those low frequencies. You can't see these things from the ground. The ionosphere blocks them. But if you wanted to observe the universe at those frequencies, but going on the far side of the moon would be a good place to be. Mm. Hide from the aurora. <laughs> In terms of sort of uh, future missions, um, are you um, following closely the, the developments of the of the solar orbiter? Um, yes, uh, I have. Well, some of my colleagues have a, have a spectrometer instrument on that, and we're hearing what what they're doing, um, and just keeping on. And they've you know just they've now I think pretty much finished the commissioning of the instruments and going through the first perihelion pass. That's a great work, yeah. And so I looking forward to what see what the results are. But you know, I first were introduced to the idea to oh, 23 years ago. <laughs> These things take a long time. And, you know, the big thing is, therefore, to sit above the Earth, the sun's surface, and so you can observe the same region and then continuously see what's coming out, rather than just get little snapshots. And that's really fascinating to do that science. Do, do you think it would be beneficial to put um, spacecraft like Cluster around a different planet of the solar system known to have aurora and, and do the same science but around a different, oh, a different planet? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think somebody I did plan to... I have seen a proposal once to do something at Mars, and Mars has aurora. We don't see them very well, but we've certainly... Mars Express, for instance, I think has seen the electrons uh, and even seen some of the emissions from Martian aurora, uh, and just basically have sent a mother spaceship with a few small spaceships, CubeSats, and then deployed them at Mars, send them around, and then they would send back to the, to the mother spaceship, which then has the main radio link back to Earth. Is that a mission that you could could sort of see yourself getting involved with if you weren't um, 
sort of sort of sort of winding down the uh, the, the current cluster mission oh yeah 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 if we if, if for, for, for a younger person yes right. it's going to take take a long time it's not my career now i think i'll be i'll be just uh watching from the sidelines doing doing small jobs as i get older and older um but uh it's a fascinating thing i think the thing with the cube sats is getting the technology robust and reliable enough and there's lots of people working on that uh and even going back to the earth's magnetic sphere we would like to do that because what we would really like to do is fly 12 spacecraft in formation so we can get different spatial scales at the same time and there, there was a proposal to do that called cross scale it was i think just too expensive with current technologies and it's the technology that is going to help drive that forward I suppose one of the one of the benefits also of, of studying the sun is that it's um, it's an opportunity to to study a star. You know, it, it's the closest star that we can get to. So, it, it, mm. it, does does cluster kind of provide much in the way of of, of actual stellar science? Not really, because what we're looking at is what the star does to our planet. But of course, there is directly an analogy of what would happen to a similar Earth-like planet around another star. So I was saying with the the um, radio emissions from the aurora that cluster studies, because we have the radio receivers on all four spacecraft that work, and they're working at a few hundreds of kilohertz typically. So it's the old medium wave radio that, that I grew up with many years ago. Um, those frequencies. If we could observe more distantly uh, similar emissions from distant stars, that would start to tell us, ooh, that planet's got a magnetic field and maybe infer things about whether it's um, uh, potentially lifelike. Yeah, so there's quite a lot of work being done, articles written on, on using these radio emissions from distant stars to see what we see from on Earth. And um, I should say there's also similar emissions from Saturn and Jupiter. So it's not a, uh, it's, these things have been known for quite a while. In fact, I think the Jupiter ones were found first because they actually can get through the ionosphere. Ah, right. <laughs> so they were found in the 50s and the terrestrial ones were only found in the 1960s for when we had spacecraft above the ionosphere. Uh, in, in terms of cluster, um, what's what's left then? If, if, if there's only a few few years left on the missions, are there any more milestones to kind of? Oh get yes, to? there's quite a lot because of the orbit changing. There again, there are lots of things we want to go back to the auroral zone in a few years' time and actually make more measurements there. Uh, working with the American missions, we can do these kind of what we call multi-scale studies, as we were talking about before. Looking at first of all at the magnetopause and then at the Earth's bow shock. So there's a shock wave in front of the Earth that deflects the solar wind, and then the magnetopause is, is the bow between the solar wind and the, and the the magnetosphere and you know if it runs like if we're lucky we might also overlap with a new ESA mission called smile which is designed to make take pictures of the magnetosphere by imaging it in x-rays there's an x-ray emission at the boundary of the earth's magnetosphere uh, and smile is designed to image that now if that if if the timing works out right those images will come in and we'll be able to, at the same time, you'll have clusters sort of providing a kind of ground truth by passing through the magnetopores at the same time. Absolutely fascinating. And, and presumably also there's um, lots of data that scientists haven't really got around to to looking at yet because they're concerned with the actual day-to-day workings of the mission. So once Oh, now there's lots of young scientists and other scientists doing it. There's been three, almost 3,000 papers written on cluster <laughs> data. <laughs> so, yeah, there was an awful lot of data. But... Part of the idea is also to preserve the data because, you know, it's a mission like this. You might expect it to be used for another 50 years. You know, we're still doing that. We're talking yesterday in some discussions about some uh, data that was taken around 1970 is important for a problem that we want to look at. Absolutely fascinating. 
Uh, well, uh, Mike, thanks very much for speaking to me today. Um, and uh, I just want to say uh, good luck with the rest of the mission. I'm re- really interested to see the science that comes out of Cluster over, over the coming decades. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Acast or Spotify. Spotify.